We know there are times where you're just too busy to sort through the mass of information that comes your way. So to make it easier for you to stay informed, subscribe to The Morning Agenda, WITF's news podcast, where the only agenda is you. Funding for The Spark is provided by Capital Blue Cross, focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like Capital Blue Cross Connect Health and Wellness Centers, which provide in-person services and inspire healthy living. Learn more at CapitalBlueCross.com. The Spark is also supported by UPMC, providing primary and advanced specialty care throughout all of central Pennsylvania and beyond. A list of providers in the area can be found at upmc.com slash findadoc. The murders of four University of Idaho students in November 2022 has become one of those infamous crimes that the nation follows closely. Four young, attractive people being stabbed to death in an apartment located in a quiet college town is probably one of the factors that has garnered so much attention. However, Pennsylvanians have a heightened interest in the case because 28-year-old Monroe County, Pennsylvania native Brian Koberger is accused of the murders. Koberger, who was a criminology doctoral student at Washington State University, just a few miles from the murder scene, has been behind bars for the past year in Idaho awaiting court action. The Idaho murderers were back in the news last week when the apartment where the four were killed was demolished. To update us on the status of the case is Lauren Patterson, who has covered the murders for Northwest Public Broadcasting at Washington State University. Lauren, good to be with you today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. All right, so why was the house demolished last week? So, as you know, uh, University of Idaho acquired the property. This was uh, last year uh, given to them by the owner of the house. And it's been their plan from the beginning to demolish this property. I've talked to spokeswoman Jody Walker numerous times. And I think what outsiders maybe don't understand about the house being so close to campus and being surrounded by a residential area, mostly, you know, where students are living, is that this has honestly become this terrible tourist trap where reporters were camping out at one point next to dumpsters. I heard terrible stories from residents about being chased by reporters, begging for interviews. And some of the folks I interviewed said at times they were late for work because their cars would be trapped behind police barricades. They'd have to call numbers just to get out. Um, so there was quite a bit of chaos on and off uh, throughout the past few months, and especially when the police and investigators were still looking for a suspect. So the university has said they see this as a way for the community to heal, for students you know, to not be as disrupted, and for the for the Vandal community, especially the students, to start to heal and move forward. Mm. You know, one of the objections that came from a couple of the families of the victims, though, was that there would be evidence lost. What about that? Yeah, super interesting. I know some of the families, the Gonzalez and Carnotal families, you know, opposed the demolition. There was an online petition started. But it's important to note that the demolition was approved by both the prosecution and the defense. We've had investigators in and out of that property for months. 
Uh, the FBI was actually on scene October 31st and November 1st, you know, later in the fall, they were getting scans, photographs, everything they need to create both visual and audio exhibits for the trial. When I consulted with a criminal defense attorney from Washington State, she made the point to say a couple interesting things. One was that it's actually normal for crime scenes to be destroyed before a trial, especially if all the evidence has been uh, you know, extracted. And the other thing she said is, despite what people may think, it's actually not that usual for juries to walk into a crime scene, especially if that crime scene has been altered significantly. And in this case, we know that it was, right? We know that there were investigators in and out. The forensic lab was on scene and many of the victims' items that were all over the house were eventually removed and returned to the family. So even if the jurors walked through the scene, it would have been completely different than it was at the actual time of the crime. So it wouldn't really have been as useful uh, for the jurors in making a decision, uh, she said. And um, uh, this decision also it was not one made lightly. She said it would not have been made without input from investigators and from evidence technicians. From what I understand, though, they're going to use 3D printing or, or 3D graphics anyway uh, in court that will have an exact replica of, of the house and even the evidence, the blood splatter, for example. So all that will be available, right? I've heard that as well, that they're using 3D rendering. And like you said, I don't really know if that's going to be a model or graphics, but technology has really changed. It's always evolving and compounding on itself, right? So who knows what kind of you know amazing techniques are going to be used. The investigators seem confident. They're sitting on a lot of evidence. Uh, I was there on scene when they were taking the house down, and I got to say there were a lot of Moscow police officers on the scene drinking coffee and just watching the house go down. I think they feel like they have a lot of stuff. Uh, that they can use and and the community itself is ready to to move on without the house so just to provide some context for our listeners you mentioned moscow moscow is idaho where the university of idaho is located you're in washington it's what 12 miles away Right. So uh, the Pullman campus where I work out of where Northwest Public Broadcasting is based is just seven miles from Moscow. So Washington State University actually holds Northwest Public Broadcasting's broadcast license. And of course, WSU was where Brian Koberger was studying criminology. So it was one thing for the small college town of Moscow in North Idaho to be wrapped up in this, but then to find out as a reporter working for Washington State University, or through them at least, uh, that was that really brought both communities across state lines, you know, together into this this whirlwind. And again, just for context sakes, you mentioned earlier vandals. That's the nickname of uh, the University of Idaho, right? Right. The vandals are the mascot. So the vandals, the, you know, go vandals. That's the the mascot for University of Idaho, whereas Washington State University, of course, is the Cougars. So. Right. All right. So one of the reasons we want to talk to you today is that we spoke almost a year ago, and this was right after Brian Koberger was elected. Just a little bit of trivia here. Uh, at the end of the year, we had got a list of our most listened to programs and uh, the programs that uh, on our webpage that got the most views, 
And you were number six. That program that where we spoke about these Idaho murders was sixth out of the whole year in 2023 for this program. It shows that there is a lot of interest in this case here in central Pennsylvania. So I wanted to you know, talk to you again a year later to kind of get an update. Where does the court case stand? Great question. So suspect Brian Koberger has been charged with four counts of murder and one count of felony burglary. The victims are Ethan Chapin, Kaylee Gonzalez, Santa Kernodal, and Madison Mogan. Very young, all 20 or 21 years old, students of the University of Idaho when they were killed in this off-campus house. It's very close to campus, still counts as off-campus. There have been multiple hearings uh, and motions filed since Koberger has been in custody, both public and private. His defense team is working to get the indictment against him dismissed. A trial date still hasn't been scheduled. The next hearing is scheduled for January 26th, coming up just a couple weeks here. It'll be at the Latak County Courthouse in Moscow, Idaho. And Koberger's defense team is again requesting you know, the judge to reconsider his ruling denying uh, motions to dismiss the indictment against him. I really honestly don't think it's going to work, but they are pulling out all the stops and really making sure he he has a fair fair hearing. On what grounds uh, is the defense looking for a dismissal? I mean, this happens in every court case, but what are the grounds that his defense are use, is using? When I, I've attended many of these hearings, and one thing the defense is constantly bringing up is there's a lot of contention about the DNA. You know, how was it gathered? And and just again, for context, the investigators are confident that they have DNA that was taken from the Coburger residence in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, that is a match for Coburger's DNA that was found on the sheath of the knife that was found at the scene of the crime. So the defense has been pushing you know, has this, was this DNA gathered properly? They're trying to find any kind of holes where investigators maybe slipped up or didn't gather it the right way. There are many rules about how we can gather evidence. They've also asked for police records of the officers who conducted interviews saying we need to understand their methods. We need to understand their training because when they take the stand, they'll be saying, you know, according to my training, I made these decisions this way. So it's been really interesting to follow some of their lines of thinking that way. Again, they really seem to be going to bat for Koberger and and trying to do everything they can to get the indictment dismissed, but also to really be scrupulous about the evidence against him that's been collected so far. What you just listed and what the defense is seeking is pretty routine in almost any criminal case. Have you witnessing any of this, seen anything that sticks out? It's hard for me because really this is all new. If you'll believe it, this is the first crime I've ever covered. So everything is just new and surprising to me. I'm constantly having to consult with attorneys or, you know, criminal defense lawyers to really get a grasp on what's going on. So I think that's one of the things that helps my reporting is I'm really learning all of this along with people who are, are following the case. Uh, one thing that is, it's sort of anecdotal, but I do feel that Coburger thinks that he's confident and in his defense team. I've been in the courthouse many times through many of these hearings. I usually sit on the left side where he walks in and a couple of times I've seen him smile and you know at his at his defense and sit down. He he just he seems confident. So those are people in the community who want closure that want to see, you know, this case 
rounded out that they want to see a trial. I, I, I hope we can remain confident that Koberger will be getting a fair trial. And, and we can talk about that and how it relates to the media coming up. I know you might have some questions about that. Yeah, let's talk about the trial. When will it be held? So the state of Idaho has requested a summer trial date, but there's still no official date yet. We are still waiting. There will be a scheduling conference after the motions to decide. Um, like I said, the state requested a summer date, but the defense hasn't responded. You know, they might just be trying to push it out a little later. Maybe it won't be until the fall. But again, we have to wait and get through all the motion hearings um, to see what happens with that before it's officially scheduled. Yeah, these murders occurred in November 2022, and Koberger waived his right to a speedy trial. So that's one of the reasons that this is taking so long. Here in Pennsylvania, court cases are not televised. There's no audio. What about Idaho? I understand that this trial may be televised. Is that true? We don't know yet. Well, what's been happening so far is that we have what's called a media pool. So only a couple media agencies get to film. It's very restricted. They can't have the camera on, you know, until the judge enters the room. And um, then the rest of the media agencies who are present, which it's usually standing room only, as you can imagine, have to sort of go outside the courthouse after and all trade and share or go to the CNN van, wherever it is, and get the footage and photos um, to use afterwards. But Judge John Judge has actually been really critical of the way that the media is following this case. He says there's just been a lot of sensationalism around it, that the cameras are focusing too much on Koberger and not uh, what else is going on in the courtroom. So it was announced uh, last month that the hearings will actually be shared on the judge's YouTube channel at Judge John Judge. So those will be live streamed from now on. The court is sort of taking the media power themselves and saying like, well, we're going to put it out there, but we're going to be the ones that control the way that the video and sound are distributed, which is a really interesting choice because uh, as a millennial, I'm wondering like, do they know what they're in for? Or, you know, how good are the cameras going to be? How good is the sound going to be? And are they prepared for the sheer amount of people who are going to be watching this live stream? Might want to get comments turned off or something. That's you know? that's the first thing I, w I thought of is turn the comment section off. So you mean, does this include the trial? We don't know yet. There's no word yet about the trial being televised or streamed online. Um, but this is just the upcoming hearings. Okay. So uh, I think those decisions might come once a trial date is set. Because, of course, everyone's anxious to know, am I also going to be able to live stream? The trial, we just, we don't know quite yet. So, Lauren, has any evidence or new evidence for the public anyway come out in the last few months? Uh, there's no new evidence. Uh, the DNA report is probably the part of this that remains the most contentious. That, and the IgG, or Investigative Genetic Genealogy, that may have been used uh, is thought that they were able to match Koberger because they pulled his information from one of those familial databases. So those of us who have done, you know, 23andMe or Ancestry DNA, uh, when I talk to law enforcement at Idaho State Police, they talk about like there is a box you can check that says like go ahead, use my DNA, um, you know, it for solving crimes. Basically, I'm okay with my DNA going into a database. He made it clear with the investigator I talked to that it there it has to be. There has to be permission given 
But this is another example of some of the new technology that might be revealed as, as the trial unfolds and we get more details about this evidence that these new ways that we're able to link and and find people that might be responsible for crimes. So again, the DNA that the investigators think that they have, uh, they pulled it from the Coburger residence in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania. The trash matches DNA found on the button of the knife sheath that was found under victim Madison Mogan at uh, the King Road house in Moscow, Idaho. So there was no victim DNA though in the suspect's apartment or car and Coburger's defense has stated there are no connections between the victims and Coburger. So again, any more details and we're going to have to see what's revealed when the trial gets going. So just to be clear, and I don't know whether you can answer this or not, that's the only DNA they have? It sounds like, uh, seems like a well, small amount. They, there's also a bloody footprint. Okay. Um, you know, and I'm not sure in terms of DNA what's wrapped into that, but there's other evidence. You know, we know that there's footage of the car and, you know, they have cell phone pings. And remember when they went to his house, I mean, they pulled a lot of stuff right, they from did. the residence, you know, in Pennsylvania. They took knives, they took a gun, computers, hard drives. They're going to be able to search social media accounts. There's so much that we don't even know about it. Yeah, that's that's one of the things about a court case. And if you're covering your first murder trial, there are things that come out at trial that you have never heard about, never thought about. It is an interesting experience, and it's not like you see on TV. That's That's for sure. So... Has a murder weapon been found? We, you know, we've talked about the knife sheath, but has a weapon itself been found? The weapon has not been found. Uh, I remember that uh, last year there as was a point where investigators were actually dredging the Snake River south of, of Moscow, Idaho. I mean, looking everywhere, but it still has not been found. Like I said, knives and a gun were taken from the Coburger residence in Pennsylvania. But again, we don't know if that's the knife or just some knives, you know, black clothing, all kinds of stuff was taken. But we're just not sure how all the pieces fit together just yet. You know, I've heard conflicting reports about whether Coburger knew any of the victims. What's the latest, or is there anything that's been uh, solidified on that? So there's all kinds of rumors. And again, we have to be clear that there right. are a lot of rumors right. floating around about this case. People have been sleuthing and playing online detective from the beginning. It's been really harmful to a lot of the communities. One of the rumors floating around is that he had one of the IDs. And while it's true that police seized IDs from his car, we don't know who they belong to when you're a student, right? You know, again, as an employee of WSU, where co-worker went to school, I have a Cougar card, right? That's my ID card for campus. So again, yes, police sees IDs. We don't know whose they are. Um, the defense has denied any connection between Koberger and the victims, but they do have access to his computers, his web activity. So, you know, we just don't know where it's going to go from here. Do they have any idea or have they talked at all about a motive for the killings? I think that's what everybody wants to know, Scott, honestly. Uh, no idea about a motive yet. That could be something that's revealed during trial or and people <laughs> have to brace themselves. It might be something we never, ever get to know. But people are certainly curious. You know, one of the things that is you know, fascinating about this case is that uh, Koberger was a criminology student at uh, Washington State. Um, any, have you learned anything 
uh, over the past year about what his interest was, what he was trying to do? Well, so it's interesting that you asked that because he actually applied for an internship with the Pullman Police Department when he moved out west. And he said he wanted to especially to help the police with digital forensics, which is really interesting. Um, and yes, he was studying criminology. And when I talked to uh, a criminologist at the University of Idaho, he said one of the tricky things about people who, again, allegedly commit these type of crimes when they're studying criminology is it's very easy to mask. When you're sitting in a class and you're talking about you know, how people are stabbed or how people get away with crimes and, and cover up their tracks, you don't look like you're potentially some kind of murderer. You just look like someone who's doing your homework. So it's another really interesting part of the case that makes it all the more complex. Hmm. Are prosecutors seeking the death penalty against Koberger? Yes, the prosecution is seeking the death penalty. Um, that will also essentially mean we kind of have two trials. One trial, we have to prove that Koberger did this, that he's guilty. If he's convicted, then the jury's presented with evidence of mitigating circumstances to, in order to decide if the death penalty is warranted. And of course, there are usually tons of appeals. It's something that might drag out for months, even years. Another interesting thing about the death penalty being allowed in Idaho is that usually people are executed by lethal injection, right? But those drugs have been harder and harder to get. Mm. Um, but yeah. Has, has Idaho executed uh, those convicted of, of murders in, in recent years? I mean, here in Pennsylvania, we've had three executions and basically those three people volunteered to, to be executed. And that's in the last 30 years. So the last execution was actually uh, July 2020, or sorry, July 2012, uh, Richard Leavitt by lethal injection. But what I was going to say earlier is those drugs are harder to get because mm -hmm. they're really contentious, bad PR for the companies who make them. So uh, last March, Governor Brad Little in Idaho actually signed HB 186 into law, which brought back firing by uh, execution squad. So A firing squad? Yeah, firing squad, yeah. Wild West out here in Idaho. <laughs> it so. sounds that way. Lauren Patterson with uh, Northwest Public Broadcasting. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Scott.